0: The record label that gave rise to a force of nature named Chuck Berry.
1: It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the Mademoiselle. And now the young Monsieur and Madame have rung the chapel bell. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks. It goes to show you never can.
0: From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Brendan Banizak, a producer with WBEZ's Sound Opinions, with a look at the legacy of chess records. Rock and roll pioneer Chuck Berry passed away March 18, 2017, at his home outside of St. Louis. He was 90 years old. It's hard to overstate Chuck Berry's influence, which spans generations in pop music. His songs, his showmanship, his guitar playing, it all inspired the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Beach Boys, acts who would, in turn, influence countless others. Berry released most of his best-known songs on Chess Records, the label founded right here in Chicago by Leonard and Phil Chess. The Chess Brothers had many titans of R&B and blues on their roster, including Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Eddie James, Willie Dixon, and Buddy Guy, just to name a few. WBEZ Sound Opinions explored the history and impact of Chess Records on a show back in 2010. Here are hosts Greg Cott and Jim DeRogatis with a tour of Chess Records. Well,
2: I'm gonna wait till late. Won't be back no more. Going back down south, child, don't you wanna go? When I'm trouble, i be all worried I just can't be satisfied, and I just can't fun.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the great Muddy Waters with I Can't Be Satisfied from 1947. He was in the studio that day with Leonard Chess, the man who would go on to found Chess records on the south side of Chicago, one of the great blues labels of all time. A classic side, as they said back in the day, Mr. Cott,
4: I think we take the chess story for granted because we're here in Chicago, you and me. Between the two of us, 40 years of experience as a rock critic and journalist in this town, neither of us had ever had the experience of touring chess records at that famous address, 2120 South Michigan. Mm-hmm. Rolling Stones named an instrumental track after it until just a couple of weeks ago. We had a public radio event there, and we got to lead groups of our listeners in Chicago through the studios. It was magical. You know, it's really sad that Motown in Detroit and Sun Records down south, you know, these are museums now, Mm -hmm. as well they should be. But Chess Records, it's nominally open to the public, but really you hardly ever have the opportunity to get in there. This was a rare treat for us, and it got us thinking we really should do a show about the Chess Records story especially because there have been a couple of good books about it in recent years, including Nadine Cohodes' uh, Spinning Blues into Gold, and two movies, Cadillac Records, starring none other than Beyonce, and uh, Who Do You Love? Both films came out in
3: 2008. So it's we're way overdue to look at chess. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. The uh, influence of the label goes on to this day. There arguably would not have been ...a uh, swinging London scene in the 60s without the influence of what was going on in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. The story starts with these two brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess. Born in Poland, Leonard in 1917, Phil in 1921. The family moved to Chicago in 1928. They were just boys... The family ran a junkyard in a south side neighborhood adjacent to a black neighborhood. So Leonard and Phil grew up hearing the sounds of the gospel church wafting (laughs) into their workplace and into their neighborhood. So they understood black culture by living so close to it. Leonard himself was a businessman first and foremost. He saw that there was money to be made in these neighborhoods and he opened up a series of liquor stores in the 40s and eventually opened up a nightclub there in 1946, the Macombo Lounge. He was a connoisseur, though, of music as well. He understood that if this nightclub was to work, he needed to make it a place that was about the music, a place that the musicians wanted to hang out in, and it worked. He got the cream of Chicago's blues crop to attend his joint. Willie Dixon first and foremost among them, but a lot of national acts passing through town would go there for late-night drinks to attend the jam sessions. He understood and saw the appeal that this music had in that community. Very significant fact about the African-American population in Chicago between 1940 and 1950. It increased 77% with the diaspora from the plantations in the south to the factories in the north. And as a result, you had a half million African-Americans in Chicago by 1950, a ready-made audience for this style of music. Significant event, 1945. Muddy Waters is moving into Chicago. He's opening up for Big Bill Brunzi in the clubs. Muddy Waters goes electric. Everybody talks about Dylan going electric in 65. Well, Muddy Waters went electric in 45. The reason? Those raucous nightclubs. He needed to be heard. He was already an established musician. He had been recorded by Alan Lomax on a plantation in the south in the early 40s. But when he came to Chicago... That acoustic stuff wasn't flying in those noisy clubs, so you had to get an electric guitar. And that was one of the things that would, I don't want to get ahead of the story, but without Muddy plugging in,
4: mm-hmm. you'd never have rock and roll. And another thing, Ike Turner early on, the Chesses had a, a hand in uh, Rocket 88, which would be other key step toward rock and roll.
1: You women have heard of Jalop,
2: you've heard the noise they make. But let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yeah, it's great, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88, baby, will ride in style, moving all along.
3: What we're seeing here is the foundation of not only the sound of electric instruments moving in, but the attitude that would inform rock and roll in later years. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're discussing the landmark blues label Chess Records. Jim, later on we're going to talk about Chess Records' role in shaping rock, but first we should point out what I think are the four key elements in this chain of Chess Records' ascent. It started out as a label. In 1947, Leonard Chess brought into Aristocrat Records and slowly but surely ended up buying more and more of the company until it became his own. In 1950, it morphed into Chess Records, which he brought in his brother Phil to help run. Meanwhile, he was in the studio consistently with this local talent, Muddy Waters, first and foremost, among them. I uh, Can't Be Satisfied helped put Chess on the map, in a sense. One of the first singles on that aristocrat label, Leonard Chess said, hey, this stuff is going to sell. Let's do some more of this stuff. In 1948, even bigger single, Rolling Stone.
2: Well, I wish I was a catfish. Women in a deep blue sea I would have all you good-looking women Fishing, fishing after me Shown up after me Shown up after me Oh, love Oh, love Shown up His house, And I sat down, hell oh, on her still. She said, "Come on in now, buddy. You know my husband just now left, showing up and just now little, showing up and just now little. little, Oh Lord. oh well,
3: oh well. Here is the song that gives the Rolling Stones their name, Rolling Stone magazine its name, and essentially Muddy Waters is often rolling as a major northern superstar. But he's still recording as pretty much a solo act. It's basically Muddy Waters and his electric guitar in the studio. Meanwhile, he's in the clubs and he's recruiting talent. They hear that voice, that guitar, they want to be part of his band. So slowly but surely he starts accumulating talent. Little Walter Jacobs on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on guitar, Elgin Evans on drums, Otis Spann on piano. He's got this amazing blues band cooking in the clubs Leonard Chess was a smart man and also a conservative man in some ways. It took him a while to get to the idea of, well, let's put Muddy in the studio with his guys rather than mine. Slowly but surely, he was assembling studio musicians around Muddy. Eventually, he let Muddy Water start recording with his band. And I think a big turning point for Muddy was in 1954, January 54, Chess Records was up and running at this point. Leonard Chess says to Muddy, go ahead, let's record you and your band. The added caveat here was Willie Dixon, who was basically the in-house producer and in-house bass player for Chess Records at that point, was going to add a song to the template here. So Muddy, for the first time, was in the studio with Willie Dixon recording one of his songs, Hoochie Coochie Man.
2: The gypsy woman told my mother, before I was born, you got a boy child's coming, he gonna be a son of a gun gonna make pretty women jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about. But you know I'm here. Everybody knows
3: Willie Dixon's approach was he heard that Muddy Waters voice. He said, this guy shouldn't be singing sad songs. We need some pep blues, what he Mm. called some upbeat, energetic, machismo stuff here. So he laid a song on Muddy that Muddy probably never would have sang on his own. Muddy was a much more subtle artist. There was nothing very subtle about Hoochie Coochie Man. But there it was, a magical moment with that band and that song in the studio that day. I really think, Jim that that moment in 1954 was a significant turning point, not only in the history of Muddy Waters, but in the course of the label, and also in marking a huge influence on future generations of rock and rollers who heard that moment and said, you know what, we want a piece of that action. We want that machismo, that attitude, that swagger that you hear in this particular song. So besides Waters, there were... Three other significant artists in the chess record stable at that point. Just as powerful a vocalist, and in some ways even more over the top, was Howlin' Wolf, aka Chester Burnett. He was a little bit older than Muddy. By the time he came to Chicago, he was already a fully seasoned artist in many ways. He'd done some recording with Sam Phillips down in Memphis already, that famous label that founded Elvis Presley. But then he started recording exclusively with chess, beginning in 1953. And one of his key moves, he recorded with various musicians throughout his career and and, and toured with various bands, is that he had to have one guy at his side at all times, and that was Hubert Sumlin on guitar. So just about every classic track you hear from Howlin' Wolf on Chess was accompanied by Hubert Sumlin as the guitar player. And a great moment for them was the song Smokestack Lightning in 1956 classic wolf track in that it has literally no chord changes. You know? It's all about that little summon riff and that inimitable Howlin Wolf vocal. It is a bit of a howl. It's almost like a Yodel, but no one else could do it like Howlin Wolf could.
4: That is Howlin' Wolf with Smokestack Lightning, recorded in 1956 at Chess Records. We're going to continue discussing the legacy of Chess in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ and PRX. And then, Greg and I will review the long-awaited collaboration between Danger Mouse, Sparkle Horse, and director David Lynch. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is Blues with a Feeling by Little Walter, recorded in 1953 at Chess Records. We're talking about the history of that great blues label and its influence on rock and roll. Now, Greg, you were taking us through some of the touchstones of the early years in the 50s, first with Muddy Waters and then Howlin' Wolf, and
3: now we come to Little Walter. That's right, Jim. Marion Walter Jacobs, He was part of Muddy Waters' band But he was also a solo artist in his own right, and the thing about Jacobs was that he was a virtuoso harmonica player. I mean, people were making comparisons to him and Charlie Parker on the saxophone. Mm. That's what he did with the blues harmonica. He was so good that he played on countless sessions for other artists as well as his own. But Dixon saw a great artist in his own right and actually wrote one of Chess Records' biggest songs for Little Walter to sing, it was called My Babe in 1955.
1: My baby, don't stand no cheating, my baby Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheating, my baby Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheating She don't stand on that midnight creeping, my baby True little baby, my baby
3: One of Walter's uh, innovations was to amplify his instrument. Just as Muddy made the switch from acoustic to electric guitar, little Walter was tired of having the harmonica play a background role in those clubs. So his little innovation was to cup it in his hands alongside the harmonica so that the harmonica could be heard as a lead instrument right alongside the voice and guitar in those ensembles. ¶¶ Of course, the other master harmonica player and the other great chess artist of those early years, Sonny Boy Williamson II, Alec Rice Miller actually born in Louisiana. Most of these other guys were from Mississippi. And again, about a decade or two older than some of these other musicians. He had been playing all over the South for a long time, but enjoyed his biggest success once he got up North and once he started recording with Chess. His classic song for Chess, among many, was his number three hit from 1955, Don't Start Me to Talkin'.
1: Well, I'm going down the roads and stop it Fannie me gonna tell her funny what i heard her boyfriend said don't start me talking i'll tell everything i know i'm gonna break up this signal fight because somebody's got to go
3: Now, the great story about Sonny Boy is that after this great success with Chess, he started going on tour in Europe, and this kind of leads us up to this rock and roll generation, Jim. He was a volatile guy. I mean, these were somewhat unstable individuals, you know? Well,
4: you know, you can't neglect the fact that Muddy, Howlin' Wolf, and Dixon, these were big men. Yes. I mean, really, really big men, and as you and I found out, Chess is a small place. <laughs> yeah. There was no air conditioning because yeah. it would have interfered with the noise. What everybody talks about with Chess, and this was gone when we were there,
3: is the smell. Yeah. The testosterone and the sweat in those rooms. Oh, absolutely. And Sonny Boy epitomized that. And more so than other ones, he was sort of rooted in that southern culture. Whereas Howlin' Wolf became you know, a relatively sophisticated guy. I mean, he went back and got his diploma from high school. He learned how to read and write later on in his life. Mighty Waters himself was a very well-spoken man, but Sonny Boy, there was a little bit of that Deep South, eye-for-an-eye culture in him all along. When he went to Europe in in the 60s, the story goes that he once set fire to his hotel room because he tried to cook a rabbit with his coffee maker. (laughs) And then apparently he had to leave the tour because he stabbed somebody. So, uh, you know, Sonny Boy was carrying that reputation around with him. So, a wide variety of artists, but huge oversized personalities recording for Chess Records in the 50s.
4: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott, and we are talking about the legacy and the incredible music of Chess Records. Greg, that was a a great story, Mm -hmm. a great myth, perhaps, about Sonny Boy. Well, we're on the subject of mythology, and before we segue into the rock and roll years, you have an interesting take on that legendary tale of the Rolling Stones coming up to 2120 South Michigan and finding...
3: Yes, they found Muddy Waters painting the walls, apparently. In his off days, apparently Muddy would just come and sit around the studio and help out with whatever was needed. The Stones were aghast that here was the Great Muddy Waters helping them carry their gear into the studio (laughs) when they came to America for the first time. And this was the promised land for them. You know, it was interesting. When the Stones finally got to America in the summer of 64, their greatest goal was to go to Chicago to the chess studios at 2120 South Michigan Avenue and record there because they wanted that sound and they got it. Uh, Ron Mallow, the engineer, was there, the one who had recorded a lot of the uh, chess artists and he gave the Stones that Chicago sound, that grit that they were looking for on those early Stones records. But it was interesting that they found that these musicians were just sort of like regular guys. They weren't these icons that they heard on the record. They were just regular Southside people who were kind of looking at them as curiosity, saying, what are these long-haired guys? From England doing here? You know, why are they here? Obviously an attitude that
4: Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have not maintained. Yes. You know, they wanted to be royalty and they are. A decade into the story Obviously Chess is the most important label In the history of the blues But there were other sounds that they began to explore There was some great jazz music that came out on Mm -hmm. Chess Later on there was the soul era Epitomized by Hedda James I mean, what a voice But I want to talk in particular About the rock and roll years 1955, this fella, Ellis McDaniel Who had built himself a homemade guitar in woodshop in one of the Chicago public schools comes in, and he's got this song, Uncle John, Uncle John don't chuck no corn, Uncle John got daughters ain't never been right, and he's laying it down, and something's not going right. The recording engineer says, you know, we got we got to come up with some other lyrics. And the story goes, Leonard Chess or the recording engineer says, you know, how about Bo Diddley? Say 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 Bo Diddley. That kind of (laughs) is in the same cadence. I don't know what it means. Doesn't mean anything. And, of course, Bo Diddley becomes one of the founding fathers of rock and roll. That rhythm, that groove, that unique guitar sound. And arguably, you could say of hip-hop as well. Sure. You know, a lot of those early early Bo Diddley tracks, right?
2: Now, when I was a little boy,
1: at the age of five, I had something in my pocket, keep a lot of folks alive, now I'm a man.
2: I spell oh.
4: Almost at the same time, a guy from St. Louis winds up on the scene, Chuck Berry. He has a song that Leonard Chess likes. It's called Ida Red. It's got a good rhythm. It's got a killer hook. But something's missing. You know, Ida Red just isn't flowing off the tongue. The story goes that Leonard Chess sees one of the secretaries with a makeup kit, and he says to Chuck, you should sing Maybelline. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Maybelline becomes another of the key singles where you say rock and roll really starts here with Bo Diddley with Chuck Berry.
1: Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started doing the thing you motivating over the hill, saw Maybelline in a coupeville. Cat like a rolling on open road, nothing i run my VA for Cata like doing about nine five minutes, with the bumper rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh Maybelline, why can't you be true? You didn't start back doing the thing you used to do.
4: I think this is a good time to mention that there's a fair amount of controversy about the way that Leonard and Phil Chess did business. When Maybelline comes out on a 45, Chuck Berry is surprised to see that he wrote this song with a guy named Alan Freed and (laughs) another guy named Russ Fredo. Russ Fredo was the landlord at 2120 South Michigan, and the Chess brothers owed him some cash, so they cut him in on the song. Alan Freed, of course, was the disc jockey Mm -hmm. who, in addition to getting songwriting credit on Chuck's song, was getting paid $100 a week to play Mm. the songs the Chess Brothers were delivering. It's a complicated question, the whole payola issue. I mean, you know, thank God Alan Freed played Maybelline. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best songs in history. Mm -hmm. We'd have no rock and roll without it. And a lot of people defend the Chess Brothers by saying, yeah, Leonard screwed people, but he screwed them honest. (laughs) Part of it was an inherent cheapness. There are stories that Leonard Chess would fix the toilet himself in the studio's rather than pay a plumber six ninety mm-hmm. dollars There was that paternalism. If we hadn't given one of the artists a Cadillac, which is where Cadillac Records took the name, he would have just drank all the money or gambled it away. Complicated issues well dealt with in the books about chess records. We're concentrating on the music, but we just had to mention that. In any event, Greg, it was the rock and roll era that took chess to the next level. They had been selling in the tens of thousands, of copies of records of those classic blues artists, suddenly they were selling hundreds of thousands, Mm -hmm. and eventually a million. You know, at the height of the Chess story, 200 employees putting out 200 records a year and making $3 million a year. But it wouldn't last much longer, really just another decade. By 1969, Leonard Chess was dead. The company was sold for a couple of million dollars, and it's really the end of the Chess story. But if we look at the the role that the label had played in forming the blues Mm -hmm. and giving it a shape and an aesthetic and many of its key records, and then in rock and roll, on top of the jazz and soul contributions, you got to say, it's right up there with Sun Records or Motown.
3: Without a doubt, one of the most extraordinary labels of the 20th century. And in those two decades, as you said, Jim, uh, basically created a template for a lot of the music that we're still hearing, you know, here in the 21st century. Uh, How did these artists influence the future of music? Uh, Let me count the ways. I mean, first of all, you mentioned hip-hop, which I thought was a great parallel, Jim. The fact that when you think about Bo Diddley's music or Holland Wolf's vocals, or Muddy Waters phrasing, you can clearly hear that, that megaphone style of Chuck D, Public Enemy, or Early Run DMC, all the way up through the contemporary stuff, that swagger, that braggadocio, that was all in some of those early chess singles by these urban blues artists. about songwriting, Willie Dixon alone supplied about two or three decades worth of hits for subsequent rock acts. I mean, you think about the Rolling Stones covering his little red rooster or Led Zeppelin doing his "You shook me," or the doors doing back door man cream doing spoonful and sitting on top of the world. The Yardbirds and Aerosmith doing Smokestack Lightning. Hendrix and the Allman Brothers covering I'm Your Hoochie Coochie Man. Foghat doing I Just Want to Make Love to You. I mean, Willie Dixon basically supplied several generations of rockers with songs that they are still recording and still making royalties off of. I don't want you
2: to cook my bread. I don't want you to make my bed. I don't want your money I just want to make love to you I don't want you to be no slave I don't want you to walk all day I don't want you to be
3: singing the blues I just want to make love to you Last but not least, the guitar stylists. When you think about that impassioned Chicago blues style. It was interesting to draw the distinctions. There were various styles of blues guitar playing, but the toughest of them all was that Chicago blues sound. When you think about the sound of Eric Clapton and Peter Green and Jeff Beck in 60s Swing in London, they were directly referencing the hardest edge sounds that they could find, and they all were coming out of Chicago. So the influence was huge, instrumentally, vocally, lyrically and with the songs a lot of stuff out of the chess record stable in the 50s came to be a big part of rock and roll in the 60s 70s and beyond
1: Over here.
4: Greg, to wrap up our discussion of chess records, we each wanted to uh, pick a song that we love to highlight the legacy of Chess might be a little bit lesser known than some of those hits which are endless. I want to talk about Bobby Charles. Originally Bobby Charles Guidry of Abbeville Louisiana. He was a Cajun and a great talent who started making music as a teenager he recorded a song invariably called Later Alligator or See You Later Alligator <laughs> or Just Alligator and sent it up north and Chess put it out and it was a minor hit. It became a much bigger hit for Bill Haley who covered it had a smash with it but the chess brothers were excited because they got the publishing money so they were making a lot of money so they flew this kid up this incredible voice and and they were confident he was going to be one of the next big stars they pick him up at the airport where phil picks him up and he gets off the plane and phil says oh my god my <laughs> brother is gonna freak he's this white white blonde-haired, blue-eyed mm-hmm. teenager kid. They were confident. He he was an older black guy. That voice, <laughs> that voice could not have been coming from mm-hmm. this person who's walking off the plane. He had a pretty distinguished career. Would go on to write some hits for Fats Domino. Is in The Last Waltz, singing behind Ray Charles, mm-hmm. but you don't really see him in the movie, and he just died early this year in January. Let's play Bobby Charles's Alligator here on Sound Opinions. <music>
1: I saw my baby walking With another man today Well, I saw my baby walking With another man today When I asked her what's the matter This is what I heard her say See you later, alligator After one clock it on See you later, alligator After one clock it on. Later, alligator. After all, it all. See you later, alligator. After one all, crocodile. See you later, alligator. After one crocodile.
3: Charles with See You Later Alligator on Sound Opinions. Good choice, Mr. De Digging deep in that chess catalog. What a treasure trove of artists they recorded in the 50s and 60s. You know, another artist that was destined for obscurity in the chess vaults because he really didn't quite fit in with Leonard Chess's vision of what the blues was. And it's hard to believe that this is the case now, but I'm talking about Buddy Guy. In the 60s, He couldn't get an audience with Leonard Chess to record an album or record a single. He had to beg for studio time. They loved having Buddy in the studio as a sideman. He was a great guitar player. But in terms of a recording artist in his own right, he had real difficulty getting established with Chess. And here's the deal with that. When Buddy came to Chicago from Louisiana in the mid-50s, he was already a step or two behind that pantheon of Chicago blues acts. He kind of knew he had to prove himself all over again with people like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Otis Rush already on the scene. So he needed to make a name for himself desperately in the clubs and establish a guitar style and a showmanship and a persona that was a cut above in terms of just being a little bit more over the top. It was blues, and anticipating what rock and roll would become.
4: A lot of people said Hendrix took a lot of tricks from Buddy Guy.
3: When Buddy Guy went to Europe in the 60s, he caused a sensation because Clapton, Beck, Hendrix all saw him over there and they couldn't believe what this guy was doing with the guitar, the kind of showmanship and also just the fierceness, the dynamics of the guitar playing way above and beyond anything they'd heard on any blues record before or since in a lot of ways. He was ahead of his time. He was so ahead of his time that Leonard really refused to record him. Nonetheless, there was a few moments where Buddy got into the studio, was able to record a few singles, and you can hear it's like a stallion kicking at his stall, you know, like ready to bust out. He's being harnessed, but he's still got this talent that he wants to show the world. And even though the guitar style was somewhat muted, they really wouldn't let him take off. You know, no five-minute solos for Buddy like he was playing in the clubs. It was like, okay, you gotta, you're gotta, you just playing fills here, Buddy. But then you could hear him making up for it with the vocals, the, the intensity of the vocals. And I think you can really hear it on one of his first chess singles in 1960. It's a song called First Time I Met the Blues, and it was written by the piano player in the song Little Brother Montgomery an intense, intense vocal performance by Buddy Guy and those knife-like guitar fills you can already hear the guy he would become the tremendously influential guitar player he would become on this very early track and in addition I love the way the track personifies the blues like he's being stalked by the blues he cannot escape its grip first time I met the blues Buddy Guy from 1960 on Sound Opinion the
2: first time I met the blues I was walking down through the woods Yeah, the first time The first time I met you, Blue Blue, you know I was walking I was walking down
0: the first time I met the blues by Buddy Guy, one of the standout artists on the chess roster in its later days. To hear more Sound Opinions, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find our entire archive at soundopinions.org. For more documentaries, feature stories, and other original programming from WBEZ Chicago, subscribe to the WBEZ Presents podcast feed. There you can find other engaging segments like The View from Room 205, a story about some kids, and a big idea. Check it out. Thanks. I'm Brendan Banizak. Right